you left me on such a cliffhanger last week that I had I to be with you in person <laughs> to find out the rest. Hello, everyone. Hi. Uh, I actually flew to Sabrina this time. <laughs> so. But I was on the East Coast. Your long stint of so being on the East Coast was done. back here. We recorded an episode. Technically, oh the Boston Strangler and Boston Common were not supposed to be. They were scheduled for like a week after. A week later. But you had done research. My audio, cursed. Didn't work. I've had so many issues. Yeah. And it was also the episode where we talked about all of our big life events. So I'm going to make wedding. this re-talk yes. about it. But real quick, we do need to say, because just to like dwell on this for a moment, we have been having so many technical difficulties. They're back. And they're back. For me. Yes. But therefore for me as well. Yeah. Because yeah, you suffer from <laughs> my technical difficulties. We haven't had this many issues since year one of our recording the podcast. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. Basically what happened was we were recording two episodes back to back. We recorded. Mm-hmm. We clicked stop. That one's fine. Totally fine. We clicked record again. And ever since... I've had so many issues. You guys have heard it. I sound underwater sometimes. Mm-hmm. I, in this case, we have to redo an entire episode. An entire episode. Like a two-hour long There's episode. There's just a lot of things that have been happening over the past month. And I've talked to just about every customer service person and tech person that you can. <laughs> you um, can. Yeah. I, I've talked to world. like three or four companies. Yeah. So And no one seems to know. It's a mystery. There's it's, a vault of... My recording stuff is possessed, but luckily I'm hooked into all of your stuff. So what I think if mine okay. gets possessed right now? <laughs> Knock on freaking wood. It works when we're together, but not for so far it has. me solo. Me solo. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I really like that. Anyway, that's all to say we're haunted. You are haunted. We already know that. Therefore, we're all haunted. Mm-hmm. But this is two girls, one ghost. Two girls. And we are your ghostesses. That is Corinne. Hello. I am Sabrina. And like Corinne said, we've had so many life events. Corinne, you're married. We'll do the rundown. Let's do you first. Okay, because mine's short. (laughs) You had, yes, but yours also happened before mine. You had a wild. Okay, yes. So I was on the East Coast for my cousin's wedding. And then I was driving up to your wedding in Vermont on Thursday. My sister was due June 5th, but... Before you could even get to Vermont. Yeah. May A few days before. 25th, the day before I was supposed to drive up to Corinne's, little Noemi, my niece, my adorable, sweet, cute niece, was born, brought into this world. <laughs> She's so adorable. And it was it was amazing because I was always planning to be on the East Coast for a couple of weeks mm-hmm. in anticipation of, well, both weddings and then also in anticipation of Noemi being born. And it worked out even better because I got to have three like full weeks with her. It was so perfectly timed. So you got to do everything perfect. all together. You had your all cousin's once. wedding. Yeah. yeah. It was like cousin's wedding, no yeah. whammy. My wedding, no, no whammy. whammy. Yes. <laughs> you became an aunt. I'm an aunt. You're an Brainy. aunt. An aunt, not an aunt. An aunt. An aunt. But then when people say it back to me, sometimes I like get confused and I don't know which one I say anymore. It's interchangeable, I think. Yes. It's just, it depends on like your inflection, how you're feeling. Where you're from. Yeah, the day. How am I feeling? Yeah. Because kind of, when you're like all jazzy and you're like kind of being a little rebellious, maybe it's like, oh, Aunt Sabrina's coming. Yeah. But it's like when you're there to just be Proper. a perfect caretaker an and you come with all of your gifts yeah. and you're there to to be the night nurse, your aunt. Auntie. Sabrina. Auntie Brini. Auntie Brini. So cute. She's a little doll. She, really she literally looks fake. Yeah. Pe- yeah. She's so cute. She's and she's just like a incredibly small. I would just stay awake with her on my chest. Yeah. Oh, 
little so like sleeping baby with her little coos and her oh. little poos. Little coos and poos. Yeah. But amidst all of that excitement was even more excitement. It was the wedding of the century. I got married. You got married. You're an old man. I'm a wife. A wife for life. <laughs> I'm an old maid. I'm off the market. We now speak like this. Everyone can unfollow me on social media. <laughs> we, we are old women. I shed a tear for my last relationship with Bigfoot. Well, it's gone. Bigfoot hasn't given up hope. <laughs> I spoke to him last night. <laughs> what did he tell you? Did you channel him? <laughs> <laughs> Sabrina, you did that so intense. I wish I was filming your face. You were. <laughs> no, but like right here, because you're, you're whatever this like your water line. Yes, it like flipped open almost. Like you, your eyes got so. Bigfoot had to come say what he had to say. Was so, oh my gosh, that Speaking was great. Me. You would win the competition, I think. Thank you. We did not have Bigfoot at the wedding. But what we did do was get married at this amazing resort so called Basin beautiful. Harbor. It's on Lake Champlain. And it was very perfect for me and Brian because I grew up on Lake Champlain boating just around there and across the lake. At that part of the lake, you are so close to New York. Yeah. Some of our friends quite literally canoed over there yeah. and had beers and picnics. And, and you thought they died. <laughs> and I thought they died. I was very, very emotional. I was like, number one rule of being on the lake, you have to tell people how long you're yeah. gone for. So I was panicked. But it was a great time. But Brian's family has a cabin over in the Adirondacks. So we got basically yeah. buried right between where I grew up and where he would summer sometimes. Yeah. And it was just really, really lovely. And all of our vendors were incredible. Everyone was incredible. It was so, so well planned. Thank you. Hats off. Thank you. We had a welcome party and we hired the Tender Bellies, who I went to. I didn't know that you went to high school with High them. school with. Yeah. I mean, Until one of them was a grade me above time. me. And then a few people were a few grades okay. above that. It was it was like all scattered, but they're but extremely still, talented. Yeah. yeah. Friday was awesome. And then Saturday, also all of, I told you this already, but I'm going to like compliment you and everyone else at the wedding. Our vendors, so many of them came up and were like, this is the best group of people we've ever served. Everyone is so cool and normal. And I was like, what are you normally seeing yeah. at weddings? I will say though, like, you know, on this journey of like trying to feed my inner child and heal her and have fun and enjoy life more. I had so much fun at your wedding. Good. I'm to glad. To the point where I was laughing so hard that I peed my pants. <laughs> yeah, and I showed you. You didn't believe me. And I was like, look. It was full pee. Full pee. You like actually like you actually peed your pants. I was laughing so I, hard. I was expecting like a little a little dribble. Like it was my, I was like, you need, to, wet. you need to go change your pants. So this was like at the after party, and people have seen the video. Corinne and I are running around. The yeah. Fire, we had a colossal like bonfire outside of amazing. the Red Mill Tavern, which was a, right. a bar. So I had already changed stuff in there too. So I had my like little yeah. shorts on and then the uh, the shirts that I embroidered shirts. on campfire stories that everyone was watching me like diligently work on for like three weeks <laughs> which like I know you don't have time and it was really really hard work but you could start a massive side everyone hustle. kept saying that so many people got dms too yes, from their I shirts DMs, being yeah. like where did you buy those and my cousin Mallory was super jazzed about me the idea of me making a business and I was like I will never do this yeah. So if someone else has an embroidery machine and wants to start doing, well, maybe I will, you know, hold on. Maybe I'll get an embroidery <laughs> machine. 
if I have a machine doing the embroidery piece, yeah, then you can do I'm it. super down to thrift a bunch of you really, dress shirts. Yeah, it was great. I was They're into beautiful. it. But you anyway, your I pants, peed my pants. And it was so many people were talking about how wonderful. And I was just really happy that because obviously like weddings, it takes a lot of money and time for people to get to places, especially in Vermont. It's not just easy to travel to. It also takes a lot of money and time to plan it. It does. But I was just very happy that everyone felt so good about the wedding, that people are already yeah. like planning annual trips back to that location. And so people extended their stay on either end like you yeah. did too. And it just made me feel really good about it. And everyone kept saying it was like healing and like adult it summer was. camp. And it felt really good because Brian and I were like, okay, it's our wedding. But we also just want it to feel like all of us are basically at adult adult summer camp together. Like and we're living on that. a commune. It's not really about us. The only but part about, about us is you. like you watch us for 30 minutes and then we pay for you for your whole but weekend you, to eat and drink. all of us together. And I think that says so yeah. much about you and Brian as a couple is that not only are you surrounded by good people, but you brought together good people. Yeah. Like, you are good people that speak to good it people. It does say a lot about people. people. Yeah, who, yeah, everyone was amazing. And it yeah. was like perfectly blended. Everyone on Brian's side and, yeah. and our side, our side. our side. We're getting married. <laughs> we are it was awesome we and you weren't first. the only one who peed there were two other people who peed their pants yeah. it was just such a fun time it everyone pee your pants festivity you, you couldn't step away from the fun yeah <laughs> you really Can you couldn't. talk about the beautiful sleeves for your dress on friday night oh yeah, yeah. my mom so a few years ago she almost trash her wedding dress by pouring fake blood on it to wear it for halloween and i was like hold on <laughs> wait a minute Let's pause on that. And she's like, that's true. That's true. You might want to use this. Mm-hmm. So we chopped off, well, Kim chopped off our friend slash seamstress, chopped off my, the 80s puff sleeves and lace sleeves for my mom's so cool. 80s wedding dress. And I wore them Friday night yeah. to the welcome party. So there's pictures on our Instagram. Mm-hmm. People can see. Yeah. You looked stunning the entire Thank weekend. You. I also wore, I never took a picture of it, but when I got engaged, my mom, I cried so hard when she did this. Like that day when she came, she gave me this charm. It's this little gold heart with a tiny, tiny little speck of a diamond in it. Mm-hmm. And it was the very first piece of jewelry my dad ever gave her. And she gave it to me. So I wore it on. So I like looped it to this bracelet and wore it. And that made me feel really good to have that too. Uh-huh. Yeah. And we, oh, my, okay. My actual favorite part of well it's not my actual my favorite part of like I have two favorite parts of like the actual planning process okay. and one was Which collecting insane, antique bells oh, yeah. for like a year we collected by we I mean me collected <laughs> antique bells and also like bra- brass candlesticks but the antique bells yeah. to put on some of the rows of the front of the ceremony and so then when when we kissed and we like walked and broke down the glass the oh yeah. yes yes because Brian's Jewish the bells. glass smashed. It was like, mazel tov. And then and the bells. bells. And it was so cool to actually hear yeah. all of the bells because I almost heard the bells more than I heard people cheering. Yes. And they loved hearing all of the bells. That made me it was super beautiful. happy. And I liked thrifting them because now those are our keepsakes. Like some people have wedding china. We're going to have antique bells. I love that. What was your second favorite part? The creamy truck. <laughs> okay, the ice cream. <laughs> that's the best thing about. So I've been to Vermont many times in my life. I've never been to your family home. I've never been with you. Mm-hmm. But in the years of my life that I've known you, I haven't been back to Vermont. And you talk so much about it mm-hmm. that I had this image of your neighborhood and your 
like upbringing and stuff that I imagined this like tiny small street with like a bunch of little storefronts and that's where cre- the creamies were like. Was it right? No. It's <laughs> so mass. Like where we went to get creamies, and I know there's multiple locations. Yeah. But like it was the middle of nowhere. And I was like, wait, it's Vermont is such a big, small town. Yeah. That everyone knows each other. Because you stopped at Cookie Love and you brought me and Brian chocolate chip cookies on the way yeah, from Burlington to and I got to Virgin's. Brian a wonderful, oh my wonderful God. wedding present. <laughs> Brian was like, oh, and me and my parents were dying laughing. Sabrina comes and she goes, Brian, I got you a gift. Well, it's mostly for Corinne, but it's also for you. And hands us two chocolate chip cookies and then a present for Brian. And he opens it up <laughs> and, it, <laughs> and it says, they're boxers, sass crotch. <laughs> On the boxers. Has he worn them yet? No. no. <laughs> I think I'm probably going to wear, wear them. They might be like my bedtime yeah. pajamas. But what made it even better was that you got it locally at a store, which doesn't make any sense why they would have that in like downtown Virgins. Why but it, not? It felt very serendipitous that you stopped yeah. in a store, got the Bigfoot sass crotch boxers, yeah. and then traveled another 10 minutes to the lake where Champ is lake often Champ. seen. But we didn't see him. Well, we don't know yet. You haven't gotten all your photos Didn't back get all yet. The, oh, what if Champ is our like photographers? Little head out could not have been better. It, did you know that they were a couple? They're husband and wife. I did. You told me. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm obsessed loved, with them. My favorite thing. So tell them about the boat. Oh, so after the ceremony, we walked down. I've already posted so many pictures, but I like literally so, want to like post yeah. like a play by play. Like here, here's a photo, and here's where we did. Yeah. But we walked down from up top by the main lodge that like mm-hmm. overlooks the lake and the bay or the little marina, and we walked down towards the front of the water to the dock, which is where cocktail hour was. But Brian and I turned left, so everyone else turned right, and we got on an old vintage Chris Craft boat, and we went off and went over to the cliffs of New York with our photographers and took photos over there, had like, you know, a 20, 30-minute break to, to just like yeah. be together. It was kind of photos, but it was also mostly us just sitting in the boat, like relaxing together, being right. taken around. And then we were driven to cocktail hour on the boat and the guy who's driving the boat, he's like, we're going to go past cocktail hour. It's like, great. And then he's like, I'll I'll drop you off. The boat goes so fast past the dock. We're waving. Everyone's cheering. We're like, woo. And then he goes, okay, we'll do it again. I was like, we have to pass everyone again. Well, we all were like, Again, again, again. Oh, did we you? We all wanted to, like, we wanted you to come back around. Oh, because I was- The crowd wanted I was more. mortified. I was like, they, everyone has to stare at me again. And then he went really slow the second time. Oh, and I was, was like, oh, but it was, it, it was, was super it. fun. It was and very beautiful. What I loved is about your photographers is that the woman was in the boat on the ground taking photos of you guys. <laughs> and then the other photographer was on the second us. boat yeah. taking pictures. Yeah. Yeah. She was huddled down. Dedicated Sarah and Peter. To the city looks. They're so great. And then also I have to give props to Basin Harbor because they were just an incredible venue. Like it was just so perfect, like a three day long wedding with all of these events. It was incredible. But one of the things that they did that I didn't realize they were doing that was so lovely was when we got off the boat, two of the people that were working the wedding were there with all of the hors d'oeuvres and two signature drinks for both of us and just stood with us for like 10 minutes, letting us drink and eat and try all of our stuff before they knew we would go and inevitably not be able to eat or try anything as we're talking to everyone. Yeah. Yeah. That's really So I was really happy about that. I was like, oh, I actually do get to try all the food. The food was so good. It was really good. That was very surprising. Not that it was like... It was delicious. But it was like 
it was way better than wedding food normally is. I was shocked by it. It was I delicious. It. Yes. I don't even think of this event as my wedding. I think of it as like Adult we just got camp. yeah. <laughs> it was described to us too as dirty de- dancing set on Lake Champlain, and, it, and we were like, was "Sign us up!" It was beautiful. So it was wonderful. It was a stunning, stunning event. You planned it. What? And we met phantoms. Okay, you know what? I was just gonna say it's so funny because you, in our history of podcasting, have been seen by phantoms or met phantoms far it's more like in year. person. But the fact that even at your wedding. That still was true. That you ran into phantoms more than I did. I saw two, and we were in two the more same people than place. you did. <laughs> we were in the same place. There were two people. Well, one person was working. Well, so I am invisible. <laughs> no, you were running around in the photo booth taking feet pics. I was doing that. Taking pics of your feet in front of the sunset. You were busy. I was working. <laughs> And I was lounging at the bar. So that, that was the difference. It was easier to capture me. You were so capture quick. Capture you. <laughs> you were quick. I was like Bigfoot. You were like... A, I was like a lethargic little... I don't even know. Jeff the Mongoose. You I were like know. a little tokolosh running around and like tickling people's toes. And and I was... Yeah. I was Jeff the Mongoose yeah. being like, do you see me? Hello. 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 Give me my snacks. Okay. But yeah. So... Phantoms. Yes. Sarah is the phantom that I met at my hair appointment. <laughs> she didn't actually work the wedding, but yeah. she was like, oh my God. And we talked and I saw her twice. And then the person who actually did our hair was just collecting ghost stories from all of us, yeah. probably to repeat back to she Sarah. She also some good alien stories. She did? Yeah. I didn't you know this. You literally were sitting there. Uh, honestly, I was like, oh wait. Oh, I do remember. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't even like, it was like a friend of a friend, I think, that yeah, experienced yeah. it. But it was similar to something happened and then... Like men in black kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Kelsey had some great ghost stories. And then two people who worked at Basin Harbor, one who was working, I think, at the check-in desk and then another person who was working the bar are also two phantoms. So you met the person who was working at the bar because she also came to the after party. Okay. Your dad introduced me to the woman at the bar and she did not seem to know who I was. And then later she really knew who you were. So, But then she also knew who you were at the after party. But and then I'm gonna blame maybe my dad was just awkward. Uh, maybe, but then also remember you like grabbed me at the after party and you were like, like she wants to take a picture with us. The picture is on my phone. Oh, here's the thing: we all were consuming libations at that point, <laughs> and I, I don't know if she did too, but I can only assume that she also had a few drinks yeah. because she was everyone's favorite bartender. People were screaming and chanting her name as she walked into yeah. the after party. She also came up with the, wasn't she the, the one that came up with the old fashioned? Yeah. Pouring the old fashioned signature drink into the, into and the maple the creamies. Cream. Yeah. People were pouring like their IPAs in the, yeah. So it was, it was Moon fantastic. Shake. And then the second evening you were locked away in a little Mary Shelley-esque fashion writing yeah. in your cottage. And I went and partied again at you the Red the Mill. Cutest. She was so cute. I don't remember about nine minutes. But you were so happy. You were happy drunk. It was adorable. Brian said one of people's highlights out on the lake trampoline was when I gave out awards. I hosted an awards ceremony. Everyone loved that. And I asked what had prompted it. And he said, nothing. You just stood up and started doing it. (laughs) Your own internal monologue prompted it. But that's okay. Yeah. But anyway, I had about 30 s'mores and ate two dinners, and then I had energy to go out again. And, and that's when I that's met when you, the yeah. the other woman. But you were, yeah, yeah I was like, oh, Sabrina's going to be so upset that she missed you. And also, I was not in 
a great condition at that point. So apologies to you if you're listening. I'm sure I was probably the stinkiest person I could have ever been. No. I feel like it. Okay. I think in summary, if we were to do like a two second, a 20 second recap. Corinne is beautiful. Corinne and Brian. I wish I could live in that weekend. So many or bring together the most wonderful, happy people. Bigfoot and Champ did not show up. That's great. Yeah. Those are the highlights. I peed my pants. And I started my foot business. I wish you had the strips right now of all of your photos. Well, I can't show it. I'm going to sell it. Oh, okay. That's right. Honestly, though, I feel here's like the I thing. Joke that I joke about it so much, but I think I'm going to start a poll and it'll be anonymous. Well, here's the thing. You joke about it so much that it's going to become true and people aren't going to be surprised because it's like well, not, it's slowly it becoming be, not a joke. But it's like, okay, here's my, you're manifesting it. It's, I'm it's like not a joke anymore because if I'm it were afraid. a joke, we wouldn't be able to repeat the joke so many times because then it wouldn't be funny. This is us just prepping. Cat. <gasps> behind the tree. It's, I know it's under my car. Come here. Come here. <laughs> get in my car. It's, I'll get, get, get in my car. It's us prepping people for what's to come. And um, let me tell you, the poses... I'm very smart. You're very flexible. flexible. It took me a long time until I saw the photos again. It took me a long time to realize that it was both your feet and your face in the same frame because I assumed you got someone else to come below and do these odd, you know, no. interesting Cirque du Soleil-esque poses. But it's part of the it was all you. appeal. No, but... <laughs> but yeah. So flexible. The... Spread your toes too. <laughs> I can. <laughs> I'm gonna interlock my toes together. <laughs> <laughs> you should have done that for one of them. I think I'm afraid that I start this business and no one wants to buy. People will, especially if you do like we were just talking about on enca- on an encounters that we recorded. Feet and ears. You kept your double. Yeah. Because the feet business is oversaturated a bit. So I need to but find a spin. Find a spin. My... Do the thing that feet I buy my ears. <laughs> We're losing our minds. All right. It's going gonna, it's gonna to happen though. Anyway, your wedding was amazing and incredible. And Thank you our podcast is haunted, which is why we are retelling the wedding recap. And you've never heard the first one. And baby Noemi. And baby Noemi. Okay. Part two. Part two. Part two. So last week we covered the beginnings of colonial Boston. Two centuries of life and death. A lot of executions. There were pirates. There were ghosts. ghosts. There were accused witches. Yeah. There was moist stew. But this time. If you don't know what those are, you want to go back to You want to go back. <laughs> but this time we're just going to move a few steps away from Boston Common okay. to another location in Beacon Hill and the surrounding areas of Boston. Which Beacon Hill is where you live for a few years. Yes. In different apartments. Because. For the people of the 1960s, there was a whole new type of danger brought to the Boston residents, and that was a strangler was on the loose. This is a content warning. There is a lot of murder and a lot of sexual assault. You know what's that's very tragic, and I don't know why. What the cat? There was a car coming, and the cat just ran, but then it like ducked behind your car and used it as safety. So get in. I, I don't know a ton about the Boston Strangler, but for some reason, my mind associates the Boston Strangler with Jack the Ripper. So I always think it's like a more Victorian era yeah. murderer. But well, it they're actually compared very, a lot to each other. Maybe that's it why. Was, there are these really salacious stories where it's like, if you're a woman, you're in danger and it's one person coming after all of these women. And it's like this very scary thing yeah. that happened for a long time. and 
while there are many reports, spoiler alert, that the Boston Strangler was found, I'm going to present some of the reasons why some people suspect that perhaps who we think the Boston Strangler is and was might be part of the Boston Strangler, but it could be Boston Stranglers. Copycats. Copycats. Multiple people. Okay. A series of unfortunate events. All right. So on January 4th, 1964, Mary Sullivan, a 19-year-old woman, was in her Beacon Hill apartment just a few blocks from Boston Common on Charles Street. This was literally a few blocks from where the moist stew had been for uh, quite a long time. She had just moved there a few days earlier from Cape Cod. She was super excited to start her life. She had two roommates. She um, was working as a secretary. So she was brand new to the area and everything mm-hmm. looked great and it's lovely for her. a beautiful area of Boston. It is. Like- Still an extremely yeah, beautiful. Yeah, stunning. Yeah. She was alone in the apartment. Her two other roommates were gone for the evening when she heard a knock on the door. So Oof. Mary opened it and there was a man, a man who hid his true identity. He gained her trust and oh. he entered her home. Oh. Oh, so like it wasn't just a knock on the door, push inside. He, no. In almost every single case, he was let in. Oh, it's like a vampire. Mm-hmm. Mary was attacked. She was raped. She was strangled with two of her scarves and her stocking. Her stocking was tied in a bow. Oh. And there was a Happy New Year card found between her feet. So it was a very taunting move to the police. So my question is, how do they know that he was let in? Well, because I'll 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 tell you. Okay. Yeah. The killer gained many nicknames over the course of his killing spree. The Phantom Friend, the Silk Stocking Strangler and what we know him as, the Boston Strangler. So Mary Sullivan, she had a maroon blanket draped over her. She, all of the victims were nude. Mm -hmm. And for Mary, she had this maroon blanket draped over her. And on the blanket, there were seminal fluids that were left behind by the perpetrator. And this was super huge because Mary was, at the time they thought she was the 12th victim. She was actually the 13th and final victim. Thank God. But there was no evidence in any of the other cases. There were a a few items here and there left behind, but there were like cigarette butts, like stuff like that. There was no DNA. There were no clues or indications of who was there. And for the most part, this person kind of came and went unseen. There were a few witnesses that we'll talk about later, but this was really huge. Mm -hmm. And DNA evidence wouldn't be widely used for another 20 years after this because this happened in the 60s and we didn't really start using DNA in cases until the 80s and really until recent, more recent times was it, do we have the technology to really run all of these tests? What's fascinating to me is, well, I don't know actually if this is what happened, but the fact that there was seminal DNA left behind, like they collected it. They they took multiple samples. Not knowing that they would be able to test it like that. No, I don't know. I don't know. If there was, yeah, I'm not sure. Interesting. If it was just part of the DNA or if it was, or the part of the evidence collection standards, or if it was, this could be coming, like right. there's murmurs, keep these things because we yeah. don't know what's to come. But anyway, this was, she was, Mary was the final victim and we now have DNA evidence. And that DNA evidence sat for many more decades. Mary's younger sister, Diane, was 17 at the time when Mary passed. And Diane would be haunted by this crime for decades to come. She would dream of Mary every night. And when she, when Diane got older, she had a child. 
and her son has been very, very involved in trying to solve the Boston Strangler's oh. identity over the past few years, despite never obviously meeting yeah. his, his aunt, aunt Mary. Oh. Mary was the 13th and final victim. All of the victims were murdered by the Boston Strangler between June of 1962 and January of 1964. So women feared for their lives for 18 or so months. It was horrendous. 13 women. 13 women. Months. That that is no, that are known, right? That are known. Like, there could be more. Mm -hmm. The terror know? began a year and a half earlier from Mary's death on June fourteenth of nineteen sixty two. The very first victim of this string of horrors was Anna Slessers. She was age fifty five. She was found strangled in her home with a coat belt hmm. on the kitchen floor of her apartment. The bathrobe belt, this coat belt was tied at the end, which would become the signature move. So it was either like a bow or some sort of tie. And he would Good, use so what sick. was in their own apartment. So he wouldn't bring items with him. He would simply yeah. grab items that were there, which is why he was called the silk stocking strangler. Right, or, he would use. Yeah. Two weeks later, on June 28th, Mary Mullen was found dead in her home. She would be the Boston Strangler's oldest victim. It wasn't clear if... She was a victim of the same killer who took Anna's life because Mary, she died of a heart attack during her assault, which is, oh, she was so scared, oh no. so horrible. So she actually wasn't strangled. And so they didn't make this connection until years later that she was likely also a victim of the Boston Strangler. Mm. I also feel like early on in like strings of attacks like this, I feel like it takes two to three to really attach or choose like a to full be like, oh, this is a serial killer on our hands yeah right right and also yeah like for the for the killer themselves we've heard from many other reports of different serial killers that sometimes they do kind of like they're Evolve. a little shaky and whatnot and what they do and then after a few it becomes a bit more of a standard so yeah. she was 85 years old so the first victim was 55 anna and then mary was 85. Two days after Mary's death, then Helen Blake, 65, and Nina Nicola, 68, were both found deceased on June 30th. And this basically sent everyone into a panic. They became very aware that there was a phantom strangler on the loose, that this was a serial perpetrator. It's it's wild how... So there are 13 victims in mm -hmm. 18 months, but four of them happened in the first like yes. month. Yes. And this kind of happened a lot. So it would be a, a bunch of people in this short period of time. And then there would be months of silence. And then he'd strike again and murder a few people. And then a few months of silence. It was quite bizarre. And none of the people were related to each other that were victims either. So there yeah, wasn't, so it wasn't like, like two roommates or anything like that. It was always a single one-off event in succession. And some of them in the same day. It's heartbreaking. A pattern was beginning to emerge, and an unidentified man would enter the home of an unmarried or older white woman, they believed at this time, and he would then attack, assault sexually, and strangle the women to death using an article of their own clothing. It was believed that middle-aged and elderly women were the only targets at this point in time, which we know to not be true later on, mm -hmm. but in the case of Helen Blake and presumably others, some of the drawers of their desks and of their bureaus would be ransacked, basically. So he would, whoever this perpetrator was, he would 
go through all of their belongings. He'd go through their jewelry drawer. He would line up items to like look at all their watches. And it was weird because he'd like leave some things messy, but then kind of mm. organize and, and order some other things. So it was very weird. And, you know, things would be moved from the bureaus down to the center of the carpets. And it was very clear that the crime was quick. And then he lingered he spent and spent time. time there. It just, it feels very erratic. I mean, yeah. And then also, like you said, he didn't bring any of his own things there. So he no. did rummage through their homes to find stockings or whatever it was. Yeah. It's um, quite disturbing. It, it really is. I'm glad I haven't eaten yet because I feel like I would probably throw up. This thing is super very, repulsive. I'm very sorry. Yeah. This is like the darkest d two parter Boston horrors. And honestly, the, the truth is if I covered any other things in Boston, they'd probably be equally as horrific. Yeah, like there's a lot of dark. dark history. Yeah. What disturbed people even more is that there were no signs of break-ins. So it appeared that these women allowed the man into their home. And so everyone's like, why? How? And how did he continue to be granted entry into these homes? Because everyone was now in a panic, being alerted that there was someone on the loose who was killing people. So who would open a door mm -hmm. to anyone? If they were yes. afraid. Right. Women began carrying pepper and ammonia with them. They, or pepper spray and mm -hmm. ammonia with them. They packed hot pins in their bags and they purchased tear gas guns. And mm -hmm. Boston police told women to lock all of their doors and windows and to never let anyone in unless they positively ID'd the person. So basically, unless you're expecting someone, don't let them in. Unless they identify themselves, don't let them in. So now we can assume that somehow this man was identifying himself because people were not opening the door. So mm. the future victims still thought that this was someone who was supposed to be let in. So it was a bit of a mystery, but right. we kind of figure out after how he did it. Okay. The murders continued. Reporter Loretta McLaughlin went to her editor at The Record American and urged them to let her investigate. She was given permission... I don't think easily. I think she really had to fight for it. Mm -hmm. McLaughlin and Jean Cole, another fellow journalist, began their work as a team. McLaughlin, an experienced investigative journalist covering medical stories, and Cole, who was known for her expose on nursing homes in the Massachusetts area. So they were both trying to make a name for themselves and had a little bit of experience in investigations. The fact that back in the 1960s, there was a investigation and an expose on nursing homes, but we still know to this day that that has not it hasn't really changed, changed. It's and, really and that's disturbing. not to say that all nursing homes are bad but there is a lot of there's a lot of bad a though. lot of there bad, is a lot of bad a lot of manipulation and just taking advantage of people in their elderly ages mm -hmm. regardless of if it's from nursing homes like it's so sad yeah it's, even yeah in in home care you know like it's mm -hmm. it's hard to or even scammers trust people scammers Scammer, like calling yeah. and like showing up to like people's homes and pretending to be grandchildren asking for money. Did you watch one of the recent episodes of Ghosts where the no. ghost gets scammed by the Nigerian prince? No. Oh. I I haven't I'm not caught up. Oh, oh. They get they to succumb to the email scam, mm. the classic email scam. It's it's a funny episode. Okay. Okay, so these two journalists, they begin to conduct an investigation and they begin to construct their evidence and the timeline of events. And also, let me back up for a second. If anyone saw, I think it's on Disney Plus, there is a series. It's 
fictionalized, but it's based on these two women and it's from their perspectives oh. and all of their involvement in the investigations. And I believe it's on Disney Plus. I think it's called The Boston Strangler. I didn't on watch Disney it. Plus? That feels like I know. Off brand. I'm pretty sure it is. On August 19th, 75 year old oh. Ida. Sorry, I just had an idea for Disney. Oh. If I have Disney Plus, it should be Dark Disney. And that's like a whole Ooh. like Disney at Dark. Disney at Dark. It's like Nick Disney at Night. In the dark. <laughs> it's Nick at Night. We, but it's we for want Disney. Nick at Night back, but like creepy. Okay, so on August 19th, 75-year-old Ida Erga was another victim. She was the next victim. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to put a photo if you're watching on YouTube. And this photo is of McLaughlin and Cole on site at Ida's murder. So they went on site to investigate oh. and collect all of the evidence. I really it, love old photography. Yeah, it is incredible. And they're, they're in their heels and their loafers and their dresses and going to investigate a like, gruesome and grisly murderer. I love women. <sighs> Me too. A day later, Jane Sullivan, aged 67, was the next victim. But then there was a break. Mm. September came and there were no murders. So it was all June through August. September, nothing. October, nothing. November, crickets. This gave police time to mobilize, creating new procedures and better communication between six different task force task forces that were now created to help find this killer. Because mm -hmm. again, there were so many like local little hubs of police and these were happening all over. It was like right. Beacon Hill, it was Fenway, it was Cambridge, it was all over the place. But just as these investigators were starting to get their footing, the killer struck again. Only this time, this phantom strangler murdered Sophie Clark. She was a 20-year-old black student at Carnegie Institute of Medical Technology. She was assaulted. She was strangled with a pair of stockings in the foyer of her apartment on December 5th. Jeez. And so now we know that it was not just older white women. It was any woman. And this was so scary to know that regardless of your age and regardless of your race, you could be the next victim. Mm -hmm. And if he was willing to expand like that, Who's to say that he wouldn't expand to just all people? Yeah. So everyone was super panicked. Not that they weren't panicked before, mm -hmm. but now there was a much larger demographic of people who were extra concerned for their yeah. own safety. New Year's Eve, 23-year-old Patricia Bissett was killed. Investigative journalists McLaughlin and Cole had been working on an investigative series, which began publishing in January of 1963, so right after all of these murders. Mm -hmm. These two women, they put a magnifying glass on the entire investigation. They were super meticulous in their work. They would reconstruct all of the crimes. They would describe the scene. They would try to get they would try to get into the psyche of the killer, try to profile him. They were dissecting police investigations. Their voices were heard loudly because they were screaming. They were trying so hard to tell everyone what was going on and to warn women of yeah what was happening and to give them the details to help them protect themselves. They also exposed the Boston Police Department for their mismanagement of these cases, providing false information to press mm -hmm. and their lack of communication and cooperation with other law enforcement agencies. So they were like, okay, here's all of this horrific yeah. information. And also the people who are supposed to be protecting you are doing a lot of things wrong. And we're going to tell you about it. It's also, I feel like during this time, like a lot of these policemen, it's all men, you know, investigating mm -hmm. these cases. And I love that there are these two women who are like doing everything they can to collect everything. Yes. And investigate themselves. And that's also putting themselves in the direct in in even more danger. Yeah. Than oh my gosh. Anyone Absolutely. Else. Yeah. 
yeah, it w- it was so easy for people to dismiss them. And unfortunately for them, it, it did eventually happen. Yeah. While we can all imagine all the good that came from the exposure that these two women were doing, it also, it did muddy the waters a little bit because these detailed reports were so detailed. It went into extreme detail about each victim telling things like what they did for work, what their normal day in the life was, what their hobbies were. They would write about the murders, the timelines, the time they were killed, what was found with them, what was on them, what they looked like, their cause of death, the clothing that they were wearing, the items in their home, so many details. Mm. And so this gave the public, one, it warned women appropriately for what to expect and what they yeah. Well, expect is the wrong right. wrong word to but look like, out for. Yes, exactly. But, but at then, the same time, they enabled anyone who wanted to uh, give a false confession to have all of the details. But they also, it sounds like, and I think this is one of the major issues with true crime these days, is the focus and emphasis is on the murderer, the perpetrator, mm-hmm. than on Instead the victim. Instead of on the victim. And based on what it you were just nice. saying, it sounds like it talks a lot about these women and their stories prior to being murdered and attacked. It reminds me a lot of what Sarah Turney is doing now for true crime. I was watching a TikTok that she'd posted the other day where she, it was like a funny little one where she, Mm -hmm. there was some audio and it was like her giggling every time she changes the name of a case from the murderer's name to the victim's name, like the case of, because you learn the victim, like why give more of a voice to To the killer? The killer. Yeah. 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 So basically they were, that's, that was their intention and that was their thought, these women, but Unfortunately, it would potentially lead to some misdirection and, and misuse, false confessions, false confessions yeah. and like diverting the police's attention to people that weren't actually the perpetrator. And so that was scary. Yeah. It became clear that from these reports and other articles written by fellow investigators that this murderer was what a lot of people thought at the time was a single person, not a duo or a group, and that they targeted women who were put together, established, respected, and self sufficient. Although I will say, there was one group of people who were saying that, and then there was a lot of other people that were saying this has to be more than one killer. Mm. This perpetrator would sexually assault people. They would leave this part of the attack, quote, particularly incomplete at a lot of the scenes. So mm. despite the seminal fluid being collected in the last case, it would seem that that was a small piece of whatever was motivating this person. So it was a little bit confusing because it seemed sexually motivated, but the sexual piece of it wasn't completed always. Was it, or did they just not have, like they didn't leave the evidence behind of it? Perhaps there was that. Yeah. He also, like I was saying, spent a lot of time post-mortem just exploring their home. So that was Mm -hmm. also an interesting thing. And it's not like he was necessarily stealing stuff, at least from what I was reading. So he was just rummaging through everything and observing and probably oh, fantasizing grossly about what these people's lives were like. Gross. McLaughlin was actually the person who gave the killer the moniker, the Boston Strangler. And Cole and McLaughlin were not driven by a desire to leak gruesome details or right. bother police, but rather to warn the women of Boston. They were also female journalists who were fighting to have their work respected. And for a really long time, both of these women, everything that they would publish, it would come with a headline that said, girl reporter says, and then whatever they were reporting on. So you know how like mic drop is usually like a, like a, I just said something yeah. like that blew your mind. I want to like throw the Mic throw. Mic throw. Mic throw. For like, yes, it is so infuriating. And they had never made headline 
news before, basically. Like everything that they wrote wrote in, it like nothing was front page. It was all yeah. girl does this, girl says this, and it was ridiculous. And well, so the they put so much energy and time and thought and care into releasing all of this information. They actually published 29 articles in just one month about everything. You know, and this, this did re- help the trajectory of their career. They were taken seriously after that. But the fact that they that it took this yeah. to be taken seriously is well, disgusting. It reminds me of, and I think I've said this on the podcast before, but when my mom bought her current home on the contract, it says Aurora Deanna Roga, an unmarried woman. It does? Yeah. Maybe you did say this yeah. before. What in the world? Does it say that for men? No. An unmarried man? No. Nope. Oh, what the fuck? I know. Disgusting. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. So despite publishing 29 articles with wildly accurate information and exposing some of the Boston police's misdoings, uh, they were basically prohibited from sharing and writing anything else because mm. it did begin to hurt the investigation with just giving too much information to copycat killers, to people who want to have false confessions. Um, so it was just too great of detail to leak to the public. Right. So they wanted only the real killer to know what happened. Which is common that they like leave certain details yeah. out of the press in order to use it to know that they've caught the real. Yes. Yeah. True. Things escalated in 1963 with the attack and murder of Mary Brown, aged 69. On March 6th, 1963, Mary was attacked by this killer. And this time, a new weapon was introduced. She was stabbed multiple times, Mm -hmm. though she did die of strangulation. So that's why we know, or it was suspected, that this was still attributed to the Boston Strangler. Two months later, on May 6th, Beverly Simons, age 23, she was attacked in the same way. She had, in a similar fashion, clothes around her neck, but she died of stabbing. So it's either someone replicating, like copying and doing their own thing, or it's the killer evolving and uh, trying escalating. things. Yeah. Yes, exactly. That's exactly what I wrote. I was like, I I don't know exactly if the, these two people can be attributed to the Boston Strangler and what we have no way of knowing because there was only evidence, DNA evidence mm-hmm. for one person. So even if he had been, which he wasn't, convicted of Mary Sullivan, the 13th victim's murder, he wouldn't have been able to be tried for the other 12, basically. Evelyn Corbin, age 58, would be murdered on September 8th. Joanne Graff, age 23, would be killed November 23rd. And then in January 4th, 1964, the final victim, Mary Sullivan. She was 19, right? Yeah, she was the youngest. So the oldest was 85, the youngest was 19. Despite the assembly of a major task force known as the Strangler Bureau, the police spent 18 months chasing down this phantom strangler. Though launching this task force did help centralize the resources and help different bureaus work together. So there was some good, I guess, from the Mm -hmm. police learning how to interact with one another that helped for future crime. But for 10 months, there were no new murders and the killings appeared to have stopped. On October 27th, 1964, police were called to the home of a woman who had just been raped. A man posed as a police detective, gained entry to her home, assaulted her, and then apologized to her and he left. Based on her description of this man, Police then arrested this man that they found nearby, Albert DeSalvo, 
who was working as a handyman. Because I don't know where this is going, but I just don't think that this is the Boston Strangler. Interesting, because a lot of people don't, but it's kind of convoluted. So Albert DeSalvo, he was the son of an abusive alcoholic fisherman. He began torturing animals at a young age, and it escalated to other crimes. Eventually, he was sent to a reform school and a juvenile detention center. At age 17, he joined the army. Hmm. A few months later, he was dishonorably discharged. He then re-enlisted a few years later and was discharged, but not before marrying a woman, Armgard Beck, who he met during his military stint in Germany. So when they caught him for the rape of this woman, he was initially committed to Bridgewater State Hospital for observation. And with the publication of his photo and news of his arrest, many other women came forward to say that he had also attacked them too in a similar manner. So no one was saying he was the Boston Strangler yet. He was just a serial rapist. Yeah. Around the same time, we had the quote unquote green man who would sexually assault his victims, usually while wearing green. DeSalvo admitted to being the green man. So he confessed. He said he broke into over 400 homes and assaulted over 300 women in four different states. Uh, it just... Yeah. Four years before, in March of 1960, DeSalvo had been arrested for breaking into a home where he admitted to being, quote, the measuring man, who was another person on the loose. This reminds me so much of Joseph D'Angelo, who was the original Night Stalker, Gold- the Golden State, State Killer, Killer, the hysteria rapist. Like, or not Easter. Wait, yes. Yeah. Yes. He had so many different monikers. And he was, was all over the place. And he was doing different types of crimes with the same MO. All he was over. like three or four different people all at once. Yeah. And similarly, he was a police officer, then yeah. let go and then became an officer somewhere else, right? Like he, similar patterns. Scary. Yeah. Scary, scary. Okay. So <laughs> Albert DeSalvo is now saying he's also the measuring man, which was a nickname given to a serial predator who was going door to door throughout Cambridge, Massachusetts, and pretending to be a modeling scout. And once he got inside, he would use a tape measure to get the model measurements and he would grope people. Uh, and he was sentenced to 18 months in jail. He served 11 and then he was released in 1962 for the measuring man incident. And then that fast forward a few years. He's now the green man and getting caught for being the green man. And 1962 is when Boston Strangler started killing. Yeah. Okay. So timeline-wise, people could He was free. Him. He yes. had just gotten out of jail, basically. Okay. This was a man who had a pattern of burglarizing and sexual assaults, but he had no pattern of murder yet that we knew of. Mm-hmm. So it surprised police when, while awaiting for trial for the green man attacks, none of them murder... DeSalvo told a fellow inmate at Bridgewater that he was the one who committed all those murders, that he was the Boston Strangler. 300 suspects on the Boston police's radar as potential suspects for the Boston Strangler. DeSalvo was not on that list. So they had no idea. He wasn't, had he not confessed, he was not even in the top 300 suspects, which is odd because he had so many crimes. Well, so then now I, yes, that is confounding to me, but then also, who are these other 300 suspects? How did they put that list together? I'm very curious right. about that. Well, if there's, I can imagine that it would be, I don't know if easy is the right word to use, but if you have 13 different victims, if you put their, all the men around them, they're- You try to find a connection. Yeah. yeah. It's like, where did they work? Who were their ex-boyfriends? Who were right. their fathers? Who was their landlord? Like, 
you can easily put together like 15 men around someone who could potentially kill them. And unfortunately, I think this is the scariest part about serial killers. And I mean, murder is terrifying and awful in any regard, but most times it is crimes of passion and Mm -hmm. it is an attack by someone you know. And for these, it does feel very, very random. It does. It's all bizarre too. And there's some other stuff too that like even even the green man thing, there's like some suspicions that like perhaps he wasn't even the green man. He was just a guy that like loved to falsely confess to things mm. and wanted the attention. And that was more what he was into. But but it's all convoluted and I honestly think that he was a strangler. So You do? I kind of I kind of do. Okay. Well, I don't know. Okay, well we can discuss afterwards. Okay. I, I my current take right now is no. No. Yeah. I'm a 50-50. So okay. you honestly it's it's so confusing. Okay, so okay. the inmate who he told he was the Boston Strangler to immediately alerted authorities and DeSalvo confessed to the police describing details about the victim's apartments that had never been published and confirming the name of a victim whose photo he was shown, a photo that also had not been published. So everyone's like it must be him, right? But here's an interesting twist. His cellmate, who he confessed to, was George Nasser, who was convicted twice for murder. Mm-hmm. He was sentenced to life in prison in 1948 for the murder of Dominic Kermel, but then was paroled in 1962. So he got out right around the time that the Boston Strangler okay. situation started happening. Yeah. And then four years later, he was sentenced to death, which was later rolled back to life in prison for murdering Irvin Hilton. So but that's two men. Two men. And between his sentencing was the time that all of the string, yeah. the Boston Strangler murders happened. I am sure that you could probably apply that to so many other people who are released from. True. Yes. So DeSalvo wasn't in jail at the time that the Boston Strangler murders occurred. Neither was George Nasser. He was out on the street. Both of them were. Survivors of the Boston Strangler, because there were some survivors, also did not ID DeSalvo as their attacker, nor the number of eyewitnesses. So Kenneth Rowe, he was an eyewitness. He was an engineering student who lived on the floor above Joanne Graff, who was a victim. Uh, He spoke to the strangler, or he didn't know it was a strangler at the time. He spoke to a stranger who was looking for Joanne just before she was killed. So it can be assumed that that man who didn't actually know where she lived and was in her unit, her apartment building, was the person who killed her moments later. Which then indicates that he did know her. Or had been watching for long enough to know her name. Okay. Yeah. Kenneth was showed a picture of DeSalvo after DeSalvo Mm -hmm. had had admitted to the crime or confessed. His dark features and prominent nose would be memorable because these were things that you would assume. I mean, here's a picture of him right here, too. We'll show it earlier in the video. Okay. um, So he he was a guy that you would recognize, right? Like, he wasn't super super ordinary like he had some features that were that did stick out it's so funny because before you said that i was like he's pretty ordinary looking but you would know like you would be able to say like he has thin lips and a like large downturned nose and he's got like slicked back dark hair you know it's hard because yeah i would love to think that but i feel like you know most of my interactions with people that i don't know Especially if they're ordinary. If like someone mm-hmm. asked me, like if I was on, you know, outside of an apartment and someone was like, hey, like is so-and-so there? And I said, no, like I'd move on with my day. If they asked me like, hey, is so-and-so there? I want to hurt them. Then yeah, I would like. Yeah. But if they give off no indication of having 
or no energy off put off of them that makes me feel weird. Like I don't know. But that if I a would... few hours later you find out that someone was murdered right down the hallway from you, wouldn't you remember within a few hours likely what that person looked like? But isn't or our generally? memory the least reliable? It is. You're right. I don't know. I just yeah. Okay. Well, Kenneth was showed a picture of DeSalvo. He didn't recognize him. Okay. Jules Venz ran Martin's Tavern next to where Joanne Graff's apartment was. And Jules saw a stranger lurking around that day. Came That stranger, the guy, came into the tavern, kind of like ducked in nervously, was behaving in a way that Jules thought someone was looking for him, someone would be after him. So Jules took note of this guy. So despite Kenneth Probably saying no and moving on. Right. Then Jules was like, I'm I'm watching this guy. Like something's weird and suspicious about him. The description of this man was exactly the same as Kenneth's. So the person the same day looking for Joanne was the same person that was in the tavern. And Kenneth is the one who killed two men. No, no, no. Sorry. Kenneth is just an eyewitness to Joanne's crime. Oh, oh, oh. Okay. Yes. We're going to clear Kenneth's name right (laughs) now. Kenneth. So sorry. Kenneth okay. and Jules are the two eyewitnesses who okay, they both did saw. not ID De Salvo. Okay. Eileen O'Neill saw a man in Mary Sullivan's bathroom. Mary Sullivan is the 13th victim, the final person who died in Beacon Hill. She saw a man up in Mary Sullivan's bathroom window right before the time of her death. She also could not ID De Salvo as this man. And you still you still think De Salvo is the strangler? Well, okay, we're gonna get to I don't know. I kind of think he's guilty of like uh, well, okay. we'll see. <laughs> Marcella Luica lived in the apartment, the same apartment complex as Sophie Clark, who was killed. And a man calling himself, quote, Mr. Thompson, who said he was a painter, had come to paint her house and was asking to gain entry. So this is now what we, how we suspect he gained entry was because with all the other crimes, he was a model scout with a measuring tape. He was a painter. He a was there to check officer. the... He was a police officer. So he was posing as other people to gain entry. And yeah. some people say that he also had a knife on him to gain gain entry. So basically it was that like threatening be, yeah. and then the door is open. See, that feels more believable to me. It feels like whatever disguise they were using was more for anyone else who possibly could have seen him. Yeah. Because... If some man showed up at my door, regardless of the time, like I can't imagine painters were just knocking on your door randomly being like, hey, I'm here to paint your place. If you, and like you'd be like, yeah, come on in. True. I'd be like, who the fuck are you? I don't ask. I already painter. say that. I'm yeah. like, what? Yeah. And let me call someone first. Actually, I don't answer. I just hide. Yeah, I same. lay down on the floor and pre- don't Pretend breathe I'm not for there. 10 minutes, yeah. which apparently is a millennial thing. Yeah. I'm, yeah. Okay. So Marcella... She said that this man who came to her home as a painter that she did not let in was five foot nine. He had honey colored hair, an oval face, and was likely around age 25. So this is totally not at all what this guy looks like. She told him, this guy, the painter, Mr. Thompson, that her husband was asleep in the apartment. And so this man left without trying to get in. Hmm. As we know, he did gain access to an apartment in that building moments later, and it was Sophie Clark's. And then she was killed. So this is what's confusing to me because Kenneth said he heard, like, the man had asked about Joanna, right? Joanne. Joanne. And that indicates that the Boston Strangler was watching and had pre-planned and premeditated which person he was going to attack. But then this version of events or story of events, like, indicates that he randomly chose. 
Well, we don't know necessarily because what if he was watching that whole apartment complex and he knew that there were a few people that he could potentially right. murder? Because there were some people that he killed on the same day too. So like, right. he could have been planning on on multiple yeah. or, you know, in an unfortunate series of events, perhaps he was leaving and then he saw Sophie, Sophie walking yeah. into her apartment and took the risk not knowing if anyone else yeah. was in there, right? So there's another survivor. So Marcella survived by basically saying that someone else was in her apartment, which was not true. Yeah. A man was in her apartment already. Gertrude Gruen is another person who survived. She was actually strangled, but she fought so hard that in this, I don't, I'm sure everyone fought so hard, yeah. but whatever happened in this one moment, he just decided to flee and to not continue. So he yes. left her alive. Marcella and Gertrude were brought in to identify DeSalvo and these women went to the prison visiting room. They were posing as visitors, and they waited for DeSalvo to be brought out. Before bringing out DeSalvo, Gertrude watched George Nasser, the guy who said that DeSalvo confessed to him in prison of, of these and crimes. And George is the one who killed the two men. And George killed the two men, yes. George Nasser, DeSalvo's prison buddy, mm -hmm. he enters the room and walks over to a social worker. He glances angrily over in the direction of Gertrude, and she becomes extremely upset, very frightened, and feels that this man, George Nasser, <gasps> feels extremely familiar to her. DeSalvo comes out moments later into the visiting room. She doesn't recognize him. She doesn't have the same visceral reaction at all. She's never seen this man. She's seen George. She broke down crying, and mm. when she was finally able to speak again, she said when they showed her DeSalvo's picture, like when the police showed her DeSalvo's picture weeks before, she thought that there was some similarities, some similar features. So she thought perhaps maybe yeah. it could be him. But now that she had seen him in person, she did not think so. But seeing George Nasser was entirely familiar. She said, quote, the first man who entered, George Nasser, I realized how shocked I was when I saw him. To see this man, his eyes, his hair, his hands, the whole oh, expression of him. My deep feelings reaction. are that he had very great similarities to the man who was in my apartment. Do you have a picture of him? I like feel that in my soul. Like, oh, that hurts so much. Like, yeah, to be attacked like that. This is him. So he doesn't look that – like he and DeSalvo have some there similar – There are some similarities. Yeah, there are definitely white some men with dark hair. Yeah, and, and like, larger kind noses of longer and longer faces. Lips. And yeah, oval yeah. faces. Marcella experienced something similar to what Gertrude did when she saw the two men. Seeing DeSalvo, she immediately eliminated him, but seeing Nasser made her heart jump. She said, this was him, only now he had dark hair. Oh. So was he wearing a disguise? Did he dye his hair? What was the situation? Especially because some people said that he had some like light sandy hair. Right. And now he had uh, dark, dark hair. hair. Okay. Another notable piece of evidence are cigarettes found at a few of the scenes. A Salem cigarette which apparently was like somewhat rare. This was not like a cigarette that everyone just smoked. Mm. And these Salem cigarette butts were in Sophie Clark's bathroom toilet and also next to Mary's bed. So there was no, I don't think they were collected as like DNA evidence. Right. But DeSalvo didn't smoke. I think George Nasser did. I'm not positive, but we mm. just know that DeSalvo, at least in his regular life and maybe not his alter ego of the murderer, didn't smoke. But that's not to say he didn't smoke when he right. was killing. Right, because that could be his, like, I mean, one of many terrible things. Police began to speculate that perhaps Nasser was pinning these murders on DeSalvo. Perhaps he fed him some of the information that was told back to them. Maybe he was taking advantage of him. Or there were theories that they two together 
were the Boston Stranglers. They basically had done together. Somehow were in the same cell as each other. But didn't they meet after the fact? Well, there's two camps. So it's either like they were already doing this together and then they just so happened to be cellmates at, at Bridgewater or that they met at Bridgewater. And then now they're conspiring together to get and split the $10,000 reward for turning in the Boston Strangler. Interesting. Because, uh, well, also, especially if Del Santo, De Santo? De Salvo. De Salvo. I'm making up words. Especially if Del Salvo. Why am I saying De, De Salvo? De Salvo. Yeah. Just it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Especially if De Salvo is maybe taking ownership for other crimes and, mm-hmm. and what's his name? George Na- Nasser. Nasser knows this. He could be like, hey, will you take the fall right. for this as well? Right, right, right. Yeah. It is interesting because so many people didn't believe that DeSalvo did it at all. And George Nasser seemed like much more of an aggressive. It's weird because it's like there's all these crimes that in, that appear to be DeSalvo's. There's no DNA evidence for him being mm-hmm. the green man, but he was ID'd by many people when his picture was posted. But as we're seeing right now with him versus George Nasser, like they look pretty similar too. Yeah. So it could be something weird and he's into confessing to these things. But forensic psychiatrist Dr. Ames Roby served as a defense witness and claimed that De Salvo was diagnosed with schizophrenia. Dr. Roby's professional opinion was that he wasn't the strangler. DeSalvo just merely wanted attention and was struggling with mental illness. Hmm. FBI profiler and criminologist Robert Kessler believed that there was more than one killer. Based on the changing MO and the various other details, it seemed like it didn't really fit the psychological profile of just one person. There were too many variables, too many variances in the crimes. So there had to be at least two people working together, if not a larger group. Which we know isn't necessarily true, especially with Golden State Killer case. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. there can be variations of crimes and still be the same person, mm-hmm. right? But like we're saying that now, having witnessed what the Golden State Killer had done, yeah, with all of the evidence coming out three, four years ago. But even if we were having this conversation when we first started the podcast, when the Golden State Killer wasn't caught, we probably would have been like, "It's definitely different people." I just know. Yeah. So also when DeSalvo confessed and confirmed all the details and ID'd that photo of the victim that had never been seen, when that was looked at more closely, it appeared that some of the details he had were actually wrong in the beginning. And only when he spent more time with the police and being interviewed, did he start giving correct information. Mm. So he was basically being fed the correct details. Right. Or he was making inferences too based on what he knew from reading about the articles. He was like course correcting. To match it. Yes. And I did read too that the woman he ID'd on the photograph, I believe her a different photo of her was published. So he could have just recognized simply her as a human being, hmm. not okay. necessarily the exact same photo, or he was fed something. Yeah. So people started to speculate that maybe he wasn't the killer. Attorney F. Lee Bailey, who was also the attorney later on for O.J. Simpson, was introduced to DeSalvo through George Nasser. He argued for DeSalvo. He represented him. He argued for DeSalvo in the Green Man trials because he wasn't tried for for Boston Strangler, right? Like he was on trial for Green Man and just said that he was also the Boston Strangler. Yeah. So he was tried for the Green Man trials and his attorney, F. Lee Bailey, what he was trying to do was to get the jury to get, to basically get him the insanity plea and to have him sent to a hospital. Because he had already pled guilty. 
So yes. it was more for just like what the charges would be and what his. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So th- he was like, help him understand why he does this, why he assaults these women. He's ill. He had a horrible and violent childhood. And he also tried to convince the jury without actually saying anything, just inferring that DeSalvo was also the Boston Strangler to kind of help with the case of insanity, referencing the crimes multiple times and calling them, quote, 13 acts of homicide by a completely uncontrollable vegetable walking around in a human body. Okay. So it's not even the Boston Strangler case and he's his attorney is basically saying he's the saying Boston, Strang- Boston Strangler. Yes. Yes. Cool. Okay. DeSalvo is sentenced to life in prison for the green man assaults mm-hmm. and robbery. Yeah. The jury didn't find it convincing that a man who was so out of his mind and possessed, was possessed yeah. and, and ill would still have the presence of mind to wear gloves during the attacks of the green man. Yeah. And There's thought in that. To be super weary of leaving behind evidence. Yeah. Cause obviously he was he was thinking about things. Mm-hmm. So he again was never ever tried for the crimes as the Boston Strangler. He went to jail as the green man until his death. He was killed not long after by someone in prison. It's speculated that DeSalvo admitted to these crimes because he believed either that he would get a cushy life at a mental hospital or by IDing himself as a serial killer, he'd become world famous, which would surely bring in money deals, which would then help support his wife and children that he left behind by being in jail. So he was like, I'm already in jail. May as well make them some money and set them up. Isn't it like the Bundy case where his dad was not allowed to keep any of the money he made off of like re- writing that book? Oh, probably. I think it went all to the victims' families. As it freaking should. Because there was yeah. a son... I don't know when the son of Sam Law was put into... Well, I didn't realize that it extended to someone's family members. Because the son of Sam Law is basically like, you I can't think profit. specifically. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because this was before... So like DeSalvo doing this was before the son of Sam yeah. Law came in, into consideration or, or was enacted. Because basically before... As we saw with like... That's the clown guy. I was... Yes. Uh, just, j- j- just clown guy. Because that clown guy. That clown guy. He he would like sell his. all of his paintings and whatnot. So yeah. now it was like you cannot profit if you are a convicted yep. felon. Like off of your own story basically. Right. And the deaths and the crimes that you have. John Wayne Gacy. Thank you. That's his name. Yeah. Okay. His wife never thought he was capable of being the strangler. So many of his friends, like so many people did not think he was capable of being the strangler. In fact, many people didn't think he was the green man either. They were like, oh yeah, he's probably the, like maybe he's the measuring measuring man. But really they were like, he's a serial burglar. We don't think he's doing all of these other things. But oftentimes Mm -hmm. those closest to, I mean- I think we all have a little bit of a blind a blinder on to people we yeah. love and who are close to us, and we don't want to believe that they could do these right things. I mean, another case in Boston that was horrific that happened, what, 10, 15 years ago was the Craigslist killer and his girlfriend who he lived with could not believe that it was him. But then when she finally was convinced, she had the police help her get to the airport because she like, refused to go yeah. back to their apartment as she should. Yeah. Seven years after being convicted, Albert DeSalvo was stabbed to death in a prison infirmary in Walpole Prison in 1973, shortly after recanting his confession and hoping to clear his name for the murders. So he turned around and said, I actually did, I did not do any of this. On July 11th, 2013, the mystery and uncertainty about DeSalvo's involvement became a little bit less uncertain 
because police had recovered a water bottle from the construction site where Albert DeSalvo's nephew worked, and they ran the DNA. So they were first trying to figure out, could DeSalvo, now that we have the technology to to run this DNA, can we run this DNA basically against his family? family? Because DeSalvo was already dead at this point. The Boston... The Boston Police Crime Lab ran this DNA against the six samples of DNA collected from Mary Sullivan's apartment and preserved from Mm -hmm. that time. And this was their first step towards trying to figure out if it was DeSalvo. So Mm -hmm. the very first thing they did was to make sure the Y chromosomes in the DNA sample were a familiar match. And if they were, they would then be able to probably take this. Their plan was to take it to a judge and exhume DeSalvo's body and then test it against him. They they couldn't, they knew they wouldn't, the court order wouldn't probably be granted by the judge if they were just like, can we take, dig up his body and test it against the DNA evidence? Yes. So they had to have more reason. So that's why they followed his nephew to the job site and took a water bottle away that he had Mm -hmm. chucked out. So there was a match. With this evidence, a judge granted the police permission to exhume DeSalvo's body, test the DNA directly against the DNA found at Mary's apartment on that blanket. They used DNA from his femur and his teeth because he was bones. Yeah. It came back as a 99.9% match. So this means that 99.9% of other men can be mm-hmm. ruled out as the perpetrator and that DeSalvo could not be ruled out from considerations. It doesn't mean it was him, but there's an extremely high chance that it was. So it most likely, from my perspective, he 99.9% killed Mary. Mm-hmm. But that does not mean he killed all the others. We have no idea if he killed all the others. Because while, yes, that followed Evidence a lot wise, of the similar yeah. patterns. Yeah. Like what if he was a copycat killer? What if that's the first time he ever actually like killed someone? Right. And he left behind. And he left behind evidence. And he did it in the way that the Boston Triangler did because he didn't have any other knowledge or understanding of how to do it. Right. And he also completed some of the acts that the Boston Triangler hadn't with right. other people. Or left it behind, yeah. Yeah, right. (sighs) Nobody who knew DeSalvo believed he was the killer. So his wife, his family, his friends, his lawyer, his prison psychiatrist, and even the police would fall to the floor laughing when people would suggest that it was DeSalvo when he was alive. He was just a small town thief. He could not be this conniving and skilled murderer. Yet here was the proof, DNA evidence that more likely than not, 99.9% chance that he killed Mary. And I was trying to, like, I am not a forensic psychologist and I I am not a DNA specialist, but I was trying to research, like, what is the likelihood of the point one? Yes. And I couldn't really find anything. It was all coming up with like 23andMe and Ancestry.com. I almost and- feel like they have to say 99.9% because there has to be room for some type of error, whether it's like the machine, yeah. the cross-contamination, whatever it may be. But otherwise, it's pretty conclusive. Yeah. But it does make me wonder too, what is the chance? So like if we say 99.9, does that mean if there are, let's say 99,000, well, I'm not, I'm bad at math. I was math. like, are we doing math? Cause I don't know if this is going to set okay, up. Okay. Let's success. say that there's around <laughs> 99,000. Let's say that there's 100,000 men, right? Okay. Does that mean that 99,900 of them are excused and 100 of them left over in Boston could be him? Or is this DNA evidence really specific to, it would have to be people living in Boston around this time or in Boston around this time who have like these specific markers and these specific things. Like how 
well, specific is this point one it has to be very over. very specific because if you think it's not it's not about location it's not about place it is literally about chromosomes and dna makeup and the i don't think any like that's why dna is such a reliable source in right. crimes because it's so unique so that's what i was looking for that i wanted knowledge of which is like okay in in boston like in a specific location if someone gets a 99.9 percent like what is the likelihood that there's even one other person in the vicinity that could also get a 99.9 that none that's what i was trying to point i was like what (laughs) would there other like if you had a twin brother i don't know identical twin it would have to be and even yeah i don't know i don't know yeah it's also i mean it's interesting because the friends and family saying that they could not believe that he was this conniving, manipulative mastermind. But they also believed but he was a burglar. only a mastermind would be able to convince everyone. True. That yeah. they are not. Exactly. And it, yeah, I think it was just so confusing with all the different, you said this in the beginning that people aren't, aren't reliable witnesses. Yeah. And that is true. But at the same time, it was very confusing to have so many unreliable witnesses say that they saw the same thing and it not be de salvo yeah. so it's like well aren't they reliable if they're all saying they saw this one specific person especially george nasser that all of their reports are generally the same and it doesn't match de salvo or does a little bit but not completely i don't know i don't know either this is a very yeah i still it's confusing despite no now i'm 50 50 i was before it's not de salvo but now i'm 50 50 dna evidence yeah it is that at least is for convincing. Mary. Yeah. For Mary. Like, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Her, yeah. Remember when I said Mary's sister Diane had a son who was very yeah. interested in in solving this case? So he was very excited and had a lot of relief come to him and his mom and peace with knowing that DeSalvo had done this to Mary. Yeah. Um, or or that they just knew there's closure. There's there was closure. Way. There was yeah. closure. Yes. Yeah, sorry, I'm struggling with my words and it's sounding awful what I'm saying. But Interestingly enough, despite his years of research, DeSalvo was not on his main suspect list either. He had a lot of other people that he thought it could be. So DeSalvo, it was like a surprise for everyone. Wait, I'm surprised though that his, that Kate, his name's Casey? Yeah, Casey. That he didn't have DeSalvo on the list, especially because DeSalvo had already been. Well, he was on, I think he was on a list, but he wasn't not nearly in the like top suspects. Like, so he wasn't like, convinced he, it was DeSalvo. He either. was not convinced okay. it was DeSalvo. Yeah. There okay. were other people that I think he thought it could be more. Gotcha. I don't know who that yeah. is. Probably George Nasser. Let's yeah. be real. And then it's also hard. I think George right? died like, a few years ago. You can't, I mean, this is the problem with guilty until proven innocent. Mm-hmm. If you release the suspect list of all, you know, all 30 names or 300 names that were on the suspect list, are you then condemning innocent men? Right. And also, the suspect list doesn't necessarily mean that there's a reason for them to be on the suspect list other than that they just knew or were around the vicinity of the person. Like, if someone died in this backyard that we had nothing to do with, like, fell out of a hot air balloon, we would be on the list. Yeah. Because we were here. Yeah. Also, I realized, because I just wanted to correct myself here, because moments ago, 20 minutes ago, I said that it was Ted Bundy's dad who wrote a book. It was Jeffrey Dahmer's. Mm. And he was sued and wasn't allowed to keep any of the profits. Honestly, good call. Because I feel like when, I feel like it's one thing if you're the, like, BTK. I can't remember his name either, but that doesn't really matter, right? 
I can imagine like his daughter wrote a book. Mm-hmm. And so if you're you're equally a victim if you're a family right. member, but it's one thing if you're a family member who's a, like child, a child or a wife or, or someone who's a, a victim in that way. It's another if you're a neglective parent who's trying yes, to. Yes, I think that was the yeah. issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So while there's been no official conviction of DeSalvo and he was dead for 30 years by the time this DNA was tested, the lawyer for DeSalvo's family says that this DNA evidence collected from the water bottle was obtained illegally. And so the ID collected from DeSalvo's body that was exhumed as the Boston Strangler cannot be said with certainty it is not something we can, we're supposed to be saying, but it is. That's stupid. <laughs> I get that. And, and yeah, I get it from a legal standpoint, right. but from a... From a rule-following standpoint. Yes. But then at the same time, it must have been legally approved if the judge used that evidence as a uh, to give approval to exhume his body, right? There must be some type of loophole there. Must be, yeah, but also someone who knows law. I'm going to say, what do you want to say? Boston, Massachusetts police, they don't have the shiniest reputation. <laughs> do any? No, but I, I think that I they've, wanna, I they've been exposed a lot <laughs> for but different things. Okay, for to. This is also probably like Whitey Bulger area, era yeah, too, yeah, where yeah. everyone's in everyone's pocket. But I was just going to say, like, for any organization, for any for humanity, for any species, there's good and there's bad. Yeah. Like, you know, the police do a lot of great things as well as a lot of bad things. And there are stories on both sides of that. Oh, yeah. But like, yeah, not to say that all of them are bad and not all no, of them no, are no. good. I just, no. I'm, yeah. But I can imagine, and like the judges, I mean, there's so much. There's so much Boston, corruption like, everywhere. Yeah. yeah, even like a whole thing with like the priests and everything in Boston, like that whole situation like there definitely were some judges some lawyers and some people that were high up in like government and law that i can see why this would be pushed through yes so while we don't know for certain if he committed the other 12 murders but i think sometimes we consume but then other times we get confused we do know that atrocious crimes like these often leave a week of sadness behind and with that comes paranormal activity yes One of the Boston Strangler's very last victims, Patricia Bissett, lived at 515 Park Drive. Hundreds of young people, just like Patricia, have also lived in this apartment after her murder Mm -hmm. because it's a dorm. Oh. (laughs) This is part of Boston University. So if you go to BU or you plan to, just know it's here and your child could be living there. Well, just to say, like, we've said this many times. Lots of places are haunted. Yeah. It doesn't lots ha- of people like something di- tragic. People die at home all the time. Yeah. yeah. And there I feel like anywhere in Boston, if you end up, there's gonna be some there's type gonna of, be there's something. a chance of a haunting. But it is crazy. Just imagining how many students probably just go to BU and get assigned to this dorm and have no idea what happened in their dorm room. Yeah. That's what yes. that's what freaks me out a little bit. So it's part of BU. At the time of Patricia's death, it was housing only theology students, but now I think it's accessible to any undergrad. People who walk by the building feel uneasy and people who've lived in the building report hearing footsteps in the middle of the night. And some of the students fear that this could be the spirit of the Boston Strangler coming to find one more victim. It's also like footsteps. That's like, I feel like urban legend to make things a bit scarier. Yeah. And honestly, I will say all of the paranormal stuff that's happening that's attributed to, is this the Boston Strangler? 
very likely it's probably not. Yes. Here's the other thing to go into a more of a spiral. Yes. It's scary to, it's terrifying to be like, Oh, I, you could be living in that dorm and not know what happened. Like the death that, and the murder that happened in Mm -hmm. that place. But then to go one step further, we have a history of murder, taking land from others of just complete violence and atrociousness that has happened probably on that very same spot, especially Boston with all the history that it has. Like there's just layers and layers of disturbing things that we don't think about on a daily basis that have happened on the soil beneath our feet. We literally talked about about that in part one too. It's like, oh, you walk through the park? (laughs) It's it's, uh, horrible what happened in this vicinity and this air. Yes. Okay. So we don't know if 515 Park Drive is actually the Boston Strangler. It probably isn't. There were murmurs of potentially paranormal activity happening also in the apartment of the last victim, Mary Sullivan, who was murdered in her second story apartment just steps away from Boston Common. On the first story is a restaurant, which you've been to. I have. I feel like I bring a lot of people there. Maybe not. We just probably walked by it a thousand times, but maybe we didn't eat there. But it's called Paramount or The Paramount. It's very popular. It's like a classic diner breakfast. It's also open for lunch. It's for dinner as well. That, that was like a weird English sentence that I said. But the Paramount opened in 1937. So it was there and operating when Mary Sullivan oh. was murdered, just above. Like the ceiling separates yeah. where she was killed and all of the restaurant workers right below. The Which is also like, how daring was this person? Well, we know it was DeSalvo for Mary's. Like, yeah, for Mary. How brave. Brave is like a horrible word to use too, but just like the fact that he went somewhere that attracted a lot of people that probably had a ton of people on the first floor and still risked being caught by murdering someone who's just above on yeah. a busy street. Yeah. It wasn't like deep in a neighborhood somewhere. Right. He, I mean, clearly he had no regard about anything else that was going on. Yeah. He just wanted to hurt. True. So this apartment, it is a rental. It's a one bed, one bath, about 500 square feet with a beautiful bay window and likely nightly nightmares. Just before being murdered in jail, when DeSalvo was in jail for the being the green man, DeSalvo spent time in the old Salem jail, which you have been to. And covered. And covered. In early days of the podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you can check out that episode, whatever it is. <laughs> So the old Salem jail, which is now turned into an apartment complex in Salem, Massachusetts, um, was where he spent a little bit of time. And residents of this building, who are now living in apartments, Mm -hmm. sometimes report a threatening buzz around them and have suspected that this could be DeSalvo's spirit. There are cold spots throughout the building. Items move on their own. Shadows dart across walls. Lights turn on and off. There's a spirit of an old prison guard that has been seen here many times. Yeah. He's carrying his clipboard and he's roaming the halls. Mm-hmm. And now the jail has housed many more people than the Boston Strangler. Yes. This was also a prison for many suspected witches during the Salem witch trials. Also during the Civil War, it had multiple people in there. So there's a lot of negative energy permeating these walls. There's a lot of haunting past and desperate prisoners. So I can't imagine that it's all DeSalvo yeah, doing no. this. Uh, but, but I'm sure his ghost would take credit for all of it exactly his mo this is so this is so like yes this is an accurate way this is not i can't even what's the english (laughs) yes okay that's his mo that's his mo 
Unsurprisingly, there are phantom noises that echo through this building, chains rattling, loud screams, agonizing cries, and many women weeping. You know what's really interesting? I'm having a moment of like, whoa, how time works is so wild. Because when we covered this back in 20, what, 17? Mm-hmm. It had just been turned into apartments. So just there, turned into there apartments. There were no stories from residents. Like they no. were being sold. And so now it's it's so fascinating to like hear that reports there are of what people are, from are people feeling. Who have lived there. Okay. So we don't technically know if DeSalvo killed all 13 women, just as we don't know for certain if his spirit is bringing the negative paranormal mm-hmm. energy to these very haunted locations. But we do know that the case of the Boston Strangler has stuck with people for decades and researchers and paranormal enthusiasts are still looking for answers. Was there more than one killer? And will DeSalvo come through an EVP session? Many people are trying. And that is the very condensed version of the Boston Strangler and some suspected hauntings. Wow. It's devastating. Yeah. And heartbreaking. And I have such sorrow and heartbreak for all these, you know, the families, for the victims, for the lack of answers. And I think ultimately that is why so many of us are intrigued by true crime or even like ghost stories. Mm -hmm. It's this inability to have conclusions or conclusive answers that makes us want answers more. Yeah. And yeah, it's why we right. keep talking about it. It's it like, is interesting because it's like when there is no conclusion, when it is a mystery, we are obsessed with it. And then as soon as we have an answer, we move on to the, the next thing that doesn't have yeah. an, an answer. Right. With all of these crime cases, like it's yeah. really the things that have big missing gaps or pieces or we don't know who the killer is. Yeah. Or the, par- the all of the paranormal. All That's why the, we do the entire show. Yeah. It's like we don't have answers or reasons. It's all speculation. It's also like, if we're going to go zoom out a little bit, like <laughs> we're all looking for a purpose in life. And I think most people spend their whole lives looking for that. Like it's like constantly chasing an answer mm-hmm. that I think in a zoomed in version through crime or searching for answers on these life events that we observe is like the smaller version of that on a grand scheme. Yeah. We're just constantly trying to understand. Wonderfully said. How introspective. I'm spending a lot of time inside here. (laughs) I'm a thinker, not a speaker. I think you're both for us. Sometimes. But yeah, I mean, it is a morbid fascination that a lot of people have. Mm -hmm. And yes, there has been, I think, a, a period of time where we've maybe used it for entertainment. But at the core... It comes down to wanting to understand something so that we can either have closure or so that we can, I don't, I don't know, there's just like a, once we have an answer, there's a we curiosity. can understand it a little bit more. Yeah. Like aliens and UFOs and all of that goodness. <laughs> Abduct me, please. <laughs> it's basically the message I'm saying. Okay. What even are we? I do have. Is this you? This is me. Well, I didn't write it, but I have a listener story from our listener, Lisette. Saw a really nice message that I will read on the podcast that Lisette says at the end. Oh. Okay. In June of 2000, I was invited to go with my aunt, Tia, my uncle, Tio, and grandma to Boston for my cousin's college graduation. Abuela. Yes. Tia and Tio and Abuela. I had just graduated high school and was so excited for this travel opportunity. 
I hadn't seen my cousin in years, so I was I was excited to visit him too. And I was so proud of his achievements. <laughs> he is like a brother to me. While there, he took all of us over to Boston to absorb the rich history. And I didn't have any paranormal experiences until Uh-oh. we visited the Museum of Fine Arts, Boston. Oh, I've actually never been. Really? Yeah. Well, I've maybe, been to a lot of the other museums. Maybe you'll go after this. My family had been at the museum for a little over an hour, and we had just passed the ancient Egypt display of mummies, coffins, weapons, and pottery, to name a few. It was pretty uneventful, <laughs> paranormal-wise. As we left that area and traveled towards another exhibit, Tia stopped dead in her tracks. She had been fine the entire visit and was smiling and enjoying the artifacts and paintings. I had been walking just a few steps ahead of her, and when I did not hear her following, I turned, and I saw an expression I will never forget. Her face had turned instantly bright cherry red. Her mouth was slightly agape, and she was holding her breath. <sighs> Worried, I scurried back to her and held her hand. Her hand was so hot. Oh. I asked if she was okay, and she did not respond immediately. I called for my uncle. My eyes were tearing up because I thought she was having a heart attack or a stroke. Oh my gosh, that is very scary. My uncle came over and said, Mija, don't worry. Your Tia has this happen every once in a while. It's just a mild possession. Shocked, I turned to my Tia and asked again, are you okay? She replied, there is something evil. I can't go over there. Her eyes welled up, but she did not sob. The tears fell on her cheeks, and she brushed them away immediately as if embarrassed. She turned to the left and walked towards the gift store to sit down. I asked my cousin, what was that all about? I'm so worried. Is she really okay? And my cousin said something that shocked me. She feels things and sees things sometimes. She hears things too. And I was like, oh, what? This is the first time I've ever heard of it. I like how Tia was just be? trying to freaking brush this off me like, yeah, it just happens sometimes. Ignore her. Yeah. Well, no, the cousin was trying to brush it off. Brush oh, it off. oh. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, but, uh, no, Tia's very psychic. But I feel like if it is your norm, then like, yeah, it's like, don't worry. I think they're just trying to reassure Lisette. Meanwhile, my aunt was sitting with my uncle who was reading a book from the shop as if it was nothing. I then saw the color return to her face and she looked peaceful again, just with a little bit of worry. She didn't look up. She kept her gaze on the floor and seemed like she was just focusing on breathing. I was so intrigued with what had just happened that I wanted to investigate. I was walking with my grandma into the hall my aunt said that she could not enter. I asked my grandma what this is all about. And she said, yeah, your aunt is crazy. She says she can feel otherworldly presences sometimes. Good, sometimes bad. I don't believe it. <laughs> but I did. I didn't feel anything at first when I entered the hall, but I felt a slight chill as I turned the corner. The hall was long and narrow. It had furniture pieces and some artwork. I, I particularly felt something cold around a bed frame and a painting. I've never had personal experiences, but I do think there is some energy or spirit presence out there. The hall started feeling claustrophobic, so I left. I went back to my aunt, asked her how she was feeling, and she said, much better. I asked her about her ability to feel, hear, and see things, and she said she's had the ability since her childhood in Nicaragua. She said, most of the time, the spirits are harmless and just passing by, so I don't pay them any mind. But this one, this man, he is evil. Ah. He has done terrible things. My gosh. Really bad things. And he's just hanging out in the museum where all these people are? I was speechless. Do you know what he did? I asked. She said, yes, 
but it was a long time ago, a really long time ago. Poor women. She didn't want to talk about it anymore, so I let it go. I asked her over 10 years later about that incident. She remembered she told me the same thing and said that sometimes, though not common, she picks up on something evil. Thanks for reading. I really appreciate the friendly format and insight into both of your lives. It truly feels like listening to friends. Stay safe and spooky and see you on the other side. Best wishes, Lisette. She then says, you don't need to read this on the podcast, but I do think it's, (laughs) but we did. P.S. Sabrina, I used to feel like no one saw me either. My mom always said, love yourself. When you do, the light will shine. I was always introverted and shy. Self-love goes a long way. Cheers for your accomplishments. It's okay to pat yourself on the back. And it's okay to fail. Just be. You are wonderful. Corinne, you are too. That's nice I know. though. That's why I'm reading it. (laughs) (laughs) Did I say it was bad? No, no. I just, I'm like, you don't have to read about me. Like, this is just so beautiful for you. Um, You both make me laugh on my boring LA traffic car ride home from my work to the hospital. Seriously, thank you both. And I just think that is a very beautiful message that I have always needed to hear. Mm -hmm. And I have been focusing on and trying to do a lot this year. But I also think everyone's listening, all of you, whoever's listening, you are beautiful. You are important. Mm -hmm. Love yourself. You is kind. You You do smart. You is important. You shine. And I think one thing that I've really, I want to talk about her story in a second, but (laughs) one thing that I have spent a lot of time loving about myself in the past year is something that I felt like I had been made to believe was wrong with me is that I shine by letting other people shine sometimes. Mm -hmm. Like I'm really good at lifting other people up and making people shine, which makes me shine. And I don't need to be like center of attention to shine. And you don't need to be. No. You can shine by doing things that people don't realize you're doing. But you also can't prioritize other people's shine no, yes, you're letting right. yourself shine. You're right. But I was, I think I was led to believe, I'm not saying this in the right way, but I think I was led to believe that my lack of desire to participate in a ton of social events or, you know, ability to like turn on charm and stuff meant I was not doing something correct. But mm. actually, I shine in those events because I like, yes, I don't like those because. I am really good at making room for other people, which is why I get so drained in those events. Yeah. Because I help other people shine, which then means I don't Well, that's why people feel so comfortable with you too, because you do open the space up. Like it's, you're a very comforting person to be around. Thank you. Because your energy is like, I feel like people probably tell you like their deep, dark secrets, (laughs) right? Because like you are, you're, you are safe. Thank you. Anyway, I feel like I'm not wording that properly, but but basically I have learned to – that just because someone shines in a different way does not mean – and you don't shine in that way does not mean you don't shine. You shine. Yes. Absolutely. Perfectly said. Yeah. Get to know yourself. Get you to might, know yourself. You might be surprised by how cool you are. <laughs> you are – I already knew you were the coolest, which is why I made you my best friend and business partner for the past five years, so – I think everyone else knows already, but we're glad that you're learning now too. Oh gosh. We okay. Enough you were about super me. Cool. Lisette, this story. I know this is, 
it's odd because it's like it could be so many things like it's all those poor women like was it some of the witch trial stuff was it a strangler stuff the strangler stuff yeah we have no idea it could be so many different things was it attached to something in the museum that it's like this evil man who did some terrible Mm -hmm. things to women in ancient egypt or wherever you know in the world that piece was from right I know. Yeah, because that's another thing. It doesn't necessarily need to be Boston. It could just be that person saw some atrocities somewhere yeah. and is now just stuck to this Ooh. some piece. I also think about – I just think art is so fascinating. We've talked about this before in, you know, episodes about like the crying boy and the um, – what's the one I did recently? I forget. What the, the anguished man? No. The one that was – that um Zach Bagans has like a personalized. Oh. Why am I blanking? Oh my gosh! It's like the little girl and like the isn't little boy. A, isn't it a series? It's a series. Yeah. Why am I blanking? I cannot remember. Anyway, just about this this idea that art kind of takes on a life of its own, and artists pour their emotion and psyches and and stories into the art. That I almost imagine like there's this person from however many years ago who created this piece of art that is now maybe in a museum that holds his sins and his confessions. Oh my gosh. This makes me view art therapy differently. But honestly, that could be, well, it's one of those things where like when you think of art therapy is like healing pieces of yourself. But what if sometimes you accidentally just chip off these pieces of yourself? It's a horcrux. It's a horcrux and it's stuck into this and then Ah, here's the lesson. Just don't be a terrible person and yeah, your art won't become possessed. And give yourself grace. Yeah, as well. Cuz we can all we can all have a comeback story. Yeah, for the comeback kids. <laughs> for the comeback kids. Thank you to all of you. Yes. You can follow us on social media, mm-hmm. you can rate and review on iTunes, you can check out our website for merch if you want to represent the podcast Congrats. and also follow us for any future live show information. Yeah. Also, most importantly, if you have any ghost stories of your own, email us at two girls one ghost podcast at gmail.com. I don't know why I wanted to whisper two girls one ghost podcast at gmail.com. <laughs> and then, well, there you go. You yeah, did. Yeah. Give in to your Join our Patreon. We have campfire stories. Watch us on YouTube. Therapy. Um, therapy. <laughs> therapy is good. Be. Therapy <laughs> is great. Love yourself. I did say there will be, but I think I said it to mumble that it sounded like therapy. Yeah. But in the YouTube video, there will be photos that Corinne referenced mm-hmm. throughout the episode. And we're with each other. So if you want to see us interact and look at each other. Hey, here it is. Here it is. Here we and are. And we uh, recently brought back the sponsors page on our website too. Yes. So if you're looking for those codes, we made them a little bit easier. You made them. That to was access. you. That was all you. Don't do it from a web browser, not from your mobile phone. Well, now people are going to look at it from their mobile phone. I'm not in. a web designer and I did what I could. You did, you did great. <laughs> Yes. We love you all. We love Christina who edits this podcast. Thank you so much for all your hard work. And thank you for all of your hard work by suffering through listening to us. Just kidding. No, we're great. We love each other. We love ourselves. Eternal suffering over here at Two Girls, One Ghost. Yay. Thank you to all of you. We love you. And we will see you on the (laughs) other side. Very spooky.